You're listening to episode 37 of the National Centre for Writing podcast with me, Simon Jones. Every week we talk about the writing life and discover exciting new projects. It's Thursday, 28th of March, 2019, here at Dragon Hall in Norwich. Two weeks ago at London Book Fair, we launched a new international literature showcase in partnership with British Council. For 2019, we're doing the showcase slightly differently to previous years, most notably with our guest curators. The writers in our first showcase have been selected by none other than Elif Shafak, who you hopefully heard on the pod back in episode 35. If you didn't listen to her conversation with Bidisha, I urge you to go hunt it down right now, not only because it's utterly brilliant, but also because it leads into today's episode perfectly. What follows is an amazing follow-up discussion between Elif and three of her selected writers, Bernadine Evaristo, Lucy Caldwell and Sarah Maitland, covering subjects around identity, trends, social media, imposter syndrome and the state of the publishing industry. This event had a hugely passionate audience and I've retained much of the Q&A because it's too good to be missed. As this was recorded during a live event on the busy show floor at Olympia, you'll have to forgive some background noise during the conversation. And I want to start with a question that I find difficult to, to answer. Sometimes when I'm introduced, I realize people say Turkish author, Turkish woman author, British Turkish author. So there's always these adjectives going you know, before our, what we do as storytellers. I wonder how comfortable you are with that. Is it an important part of who you, who you are, what you do, how you write, or you, do you only and only want to be known as storytellers, that's it? Or is it, is it important to be described as a woman writer and, 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 and the other identities that might be central to you? So sh- shall I start with you? Yes, well, to be honest, at this stage, I don't really care mm. because I'm called all kinds of things. So <laughs> I, I was on a panel um, last week and they said, well, do you consider yourself a woman author? And I said, yes, but I'm also a black woman author. I can't just be a woman author if we're going to talk about labels in terms of identity. I'm an, in- an intersectional feminist. I cannot separate being female and also being yeah. somebody of African descent. Um, so I've been writing for a very long time and uh, th- these um, you know, labels keep reoccurring and at various stages in my career I have objected to them. So at one stage I would think to myself, well, why am I a black woman author and Martin Amos is not considered a white male author? Or I'm a black working class woman author and he's a white male middle class author. Um, but I think they, these labels do serve a purpose. Um, so they do help to identify the position from which I write for mm-hmm. those who are interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a good thing. And I do write from my cultural background as a woman and as a person of color. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be seen as reductive, um, putting you into a box. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is some truth in that. Mm-hmm. But, um, but at the same time, I think the pros at the moment outweigh the cons. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. I hold a British passport and an Irish passport, neither of which sums up how I feel as a writer. I feel a varying degree of fraudulent and inadequate, whichever one of them I use, depending on who I'm with, where I'm traveling. Um, I would regard myself as a Northern Irish writer. Um, Northern Ireland as a country is younger than my late grandmother and maybe won't exist. Who knows what will happen after Brexit? That, that's, that's so brilliant what you said. Younger than my 
my my late my grandmother. My, yeah, my, my, grandmother. Sorry, my grandmother. Yes. My late grandmother was born a year before Northern Ireland That's was born. Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, she died two years ago. Yeah. Uh, who knows if Northern Ireland will live much much yeah. longer? So I would regard myself as a woman writer. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think when you're at the page, you're a writer. That's it, first and foremost. But as qualifiers go, I would say I'm a Belfast writer. Yeah. Because I write very much about my city. Um, I'm a Belfast writer, but I live in London. Yeah. I'm married to a Londoner. I'm raising two children in London. I haven't lived in Belfast, so I work there. So I have a lot of the time that tangle of being here, but writing about there and what word is best to describe to describe that. So for me, it's it's complicated. Indeed, indeed, yeah, beautiful. I. I'm really interested in the words that people find useful to describe you with. I have never been described as a post-menopausal writer. <laughs> I mean, let's get a grip. I am. That presumably means that I'm open to sets of experiences that other people haven't had. But my publisher never puts this most interesting and creative post-menopausal person. <laughs> you know? Um, so I think that what one hears in woman, um, or, oh, I'll tell you something else I've never described as, because they're afraid of how it'll go down, and rightly, dead pot. <laughs> this is a class-privileged writer. In contrast to what you're saying of yourself, it is true. Um, what we do with that's a different... I think we have to listen very carefully to what it is that the publishers and reviewers think the readers want to hear. And I think that that's, I try and look at it that way, but very seldom described as a white writer. Bunting will be endlessly described as a black writer. You'll be endlessly described as an Irish writer, which is even more interesting. I'm just a British writer. Um, jolly nice for me too, but that's my privilege. So I think that the names that people are choosing to identify by us now, at this minute, are really interesting and we should listen. Mm. So when I was first publishing in the early 70s, being a feminist writer was kind of... It was sort of a self it was so exotic and weird. It wasn't because ever all the people publishing you were feminists. It's because it was a kind of tag. Who is this weirdo? Um, now, nobody's described much as a feminist writer unless you're writing good feminist theory. That's a completely different thing. Uh, we're all feminists in a funny sort of way. So I think, I think listening to how you are described in relation to who you are is a very interesting cultural marker. That's, yeah, I guess it's more interesting. You know, as a matter of fact, I've never read the back of a book where it says a blonde writer. I have never, ever read the back of a book where it says an exceptionally stupid writer, although we all know there are lots of exceptionally stupid writers, not including us. So I think, I think it's a cultural marker that's worth hearing, but it's not worth bothering about. Just, just following up, I want to follow up on, on what you said, if I may. Do you think, you know, you talked about how the, the perception, the expectation of publishers, editors might be very different, or they, they, they have, uh, they think they know what the public wants in a way they guide. Are, are, we, are we there? I mean, do we, do we have that kind of equality of treatment? We all know that women writers are not reviewed equally in, in the same numbers as, as many male writers. Uh, where I come from, just to give you one example, 
a male novelist is primarily a novelist. Nobody talks about his gender. <laughs> but a woman novelist is primarily a woman in the eyes of the society, in the eyes of the literary circles. And it, it affects very much how you're treated. It's much harder for younger women writers. Maybe it gets relatively easier as you get older. That's my experience. Um, because when age and gender, they're both, unfortunately, fractures in patriarchal societies. But how do you experience? Has it been a, a struggle for you? Because you have many layers, not only, as you said, gender, but at the same time, color and uh, different backgrounds. So I, I love that multiplicity, and I think it gives you a, a very different perspective that I find in people like Audre Lorde, whose work yeah. inspired me enormously. And always there was an emphasis on multiplicity. You know, we are multiple selves. Do you feel that way? And has that, been a, has that made your struggle harder? Are you talking in terms of getting published or in terms of all of it, how yeah. I'm treated as a writer? I think they're, they're connected, yeah. Well, I've, I've been around a long time, and certainly in the 1980s when I was coming of age, it was very hard, almost impossible, for black writers and certainly black British women writers to get published. The publishing industry said there was no market for our work, <laughs> and therefore they did not publish us. And that only began to change in the 1990s when I started to publish. Um, and I think the problem with being um, a writer of color, a woman writer of color, is that you're seen as a trend. Yeah. And so there was a trend in the 1990s when the publishing industry opened up to, um, in particular, young, always young um, novelists, <laughs> uh, male and female. And a lot of those writers um, disappeared, you know, because the trend passed. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm remaining. And then also we're going through a bit of a trend now, I think. What is the trend now? The trend now is for um, publishers to find writers of color to publish. And I think that's a result of the Black Lives Matter movement stroke mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. um, and also Me Too mm -hmm. um, in terms of women writers. So we have a lot of writers of color publishing, especially nonfiction books, mm -hmm. which we've never really yeah. had much of in, in this country at the moment. Mm -hmm. So many of them that I'm worried that it is a trend and that most of those writers will disappear. In terms of my own journey, I've been with Hamish Hamilton Penguin <laughs> since 2000. Yeah. Very long time, yeah, yeah. and I'm with an editor who definitely wants me to do things differently. Yeah. He doesn't want me to sort of subscribe to any of the expectations that might be around in terms of being a writer of a female writer of African descent and yeah. any playing into any of the stereotypes. Yeah. So I think my experience has actually been a very good experience yeah. in terms of the wider industry around myself and the reception of my work. I tend to get reviewed. But, um, you know, I think there is a, a limit on the kind of exposure that I've had, for sure. And perhaps that's because of myself as a, a woman of color, but also somebody who writes quite experimental, yeah. innovative work yeah. that they think perhaps doesn't have a big market or a big reach. Although I, th I disagree with that. Uh, definitely. Definitely, yeah. yeah. I remember feeling intense shame when I was writing my first novel because I was writing it in England and I would say it's set in Belfast at this time and you would see people's faces glaze over, close down, you know, they thought they knew the story. Um, I've always been interested in all of my work in uncovering, you know, just going a bit behind yeah. whatever the iconic images might be or whatever the accepted images or stories might be. But even, even with that, I think it, my most recent collection of short stories published two years ago is set 
during Belfast and between Belfast and London in the 80s, 90s, early noughties. And I tried with it to tell the stories that you wouldn't expect from that time. All stories of women, young women. Um, I think it took me a decade or more of writing to have the confidence yeah. that those stories that were closer to my life than I've ever written before yeah. were worth telling. Yeah. Um, and funnily, I think you asked the question about being a woman writer. Funnily, I think it was motherhood that was the spur to that. Um, I had, I have two children, and as soon as I had my first child, I didn't care anymore what people thought. <laughs> you know, I didn't care so much. <laughs> Suddenly, my time was more limited, so I had to make better use of it. Yeah. And as well, I had the sense of all of the things I'd always talked about. Doing. You know, I talked for years about doing a version of Chekhov's Three Sisters. I sort of idly thought I would always get around to it one day. It was suddenly when I had my child and time is passing in a way that you realize it passing more. Yeah. That was the spur. And a lot of, you know, the things that you assume, the, the, the pram in the hallway, the, all of that internalized misogyny yeah. that you don't even realize you're taking in. Yeah, I think it takes, it's certainly taken me sort of a decade and a half of writing to be aware of that and to be able to confront it in my work. Definitely, definitely, yeah. I'm lucky in that, like Bernadine, I have a brilliant publisher. Mm -hmm. I've been with Faber for years. Mm -hmm. I have a brilliant editor there, and I'm so happy there. And they are supportive. You know, I believe that they will, they will help me with what I yeah. want to do. Yeah, definitely, I agree. It's such a blessing to, to work with people who understand you. And yes, that matters so much. Absolutely, yeah. yes, yeah, indeed. A really, really exciting thing happened to me last month. I became a grandmother. Oh. I am longing for to have on the back of my next book this granny writer, <laughs> and it won't happen. Um, my publishers are excellent. I'm certainly not putting them down, but I bet you bottom dollar it'll be feminist, it will be Scottish, it will not be granny-ish. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there's a, a mismatch, if that's, which is sort of what I said before. That, but... I think, I mean, I've been incredibly lucky. I've been incredibly lucky by age. When I was writing my first novel, I probably, very few people here, I sold my first novel before I had written a single word of it. And that was because, in 1968, ambitious publishers wanted a feminist novel. There was practically no feminist writing, so they were really scraping the barrel. <laughs> Very nice, too. I published a few short stories in student things, and you could see they thought, she's a feminist. Let's get her to write a novel quickly before a different publisher does. Um, my first novel and Michelle Roberts's first novel were published the same week, and they came out of exactly the same history, although they were different publishers. Somehow, there is now enough women's movement, women's liberation, feminism, whatever we want to call it, um, that we must have an English version, not just an American version. We want some novels. Who might write us some novels? Um, if they'd looked a bit more carefully, they'd have probably thought, actually, a curate's wife in Swindon with a small baby is not where we ought to be going here. Um, but luckily, they weren't smart enough. Um, so my whole experience has not been the experience that I see in the young writers I work with now which is just a slog. You know, you buy the yellow book and it says, I have a fabulous agent. I don't know if she's here. She said she was going to be, but she's skived off. Um, 
But, you know, she is bombarded with books. She can't read everything that's sent to her. She only takes on new authors, say, in January. Publishing houses that won't accept unsolicited manuscripts. I mean, it's bizarrely difficult. And when it comes to novels, it's not about femaleness. You know, Jane Austen, George Eliot, who, by the way, for anyone who doesn't know, happens to be female, um, Agatha Christie, Virginia Woolf, the whole range. Women write great novels and have done since the invention of the novel. What's the drama? Why still are women writers more likely to be reviewed by male reviewers than male writers ever are by women reviewers? I mean, it's measurable, it's easy to see, and that is discriminatory. So I think there's a whole political edge to this, which very luckily for me, has got very little in the way of my being the sort of writer I want to be. Um, you know, um, but that might be because I'm a bit crackpot. You know, not everybody wants to live up a back moor in a rather obscure corner of Scotland and never talk to anybody. It's, you know, it's quite an easy ambition to realise if you happen to have it, because there's quite a lot of market. Um, I was writing an article about some bad things that happened to me last year, and in the article I put, you know, doesn't God realise how few socialist, feminist hermits he's got? Why is he not looking after me better? Um, so, you know, I've lived a charmed life. I'm lucky, but it's not just luck. It's about embedded politics, actually. Mm -hmm. I'm not black, I'm not Irish. Um, I find it really difficult to say, yeah, why, why am I lucky? So I have good relations with my publisher, I have excellent relations with my agent, I'm, I'm blessed. I've never written an entire manuscript which has not been published, which I would like to say is partly because I write very good manuscripts. But I know lots of people who also write very good manuscripts that don't get them published. So I think it's... It's very, like most things, it's a weird stuff of the weird function that class and type of education have in British culture, which is hard now to look at. They were better at looking at it in the 19th century. There's better novels about that. I think it's a really complicated issue about yeah. gender and colour and race. And Shall class. we also bring the audience in with, with, with questions, mm. comments? If you disagree with anything we've said, please, please feel free to share. I think there's a roving mic. Think of um, these measures that are being taken at the moment, a lot by publishers, um, in a mood of redress. So, for example, prizes to find a BAME author or uh, you know, that kind of uh, initiative. What do you think of those? Positive or a good move to balance things or greenwashing or what? Well, I, I think, you know, the publishing industry in this country has woken up to the fact that a lot of um, social groups are completely underrepresented in terms of not just the books that are being published, but also the people uh, publishing the books in the industry <laughs> itself. So there are some measures around which are seeking to address this, and I think it's, it's way past, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, they should have been doing this 20 years ago. So I think all of these initiatives are um, incredibly timely, and they are starting to make a difference already. So there are various apprenticeships that are happening in some of the big publishing houses. There are prizes, but sort of BAME, as we call it, prizes have been going on a long time anyway. 
Um, and as I said, there are a lot more writers of color, also working class writers, LGBTQ plus writers being published this year, in fact, as I speak. So I think there's been a huge shift in terms of the consciousness of the publishing industry. Whether this is sustainable is probably due to economics and will. So we'll see if this lasts, because what we really want mm -hmm. is a publishing industry um, in terms of the people who work in the industry, but also the writers getting published that reflects the country that we're living in. And we haven't had this so far. The publishing industry has been about 95% white middle class, probably, probably having gone to one of two universities. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to make it more egalitarian. And so I think these initiatives are really important, but we'll see where, where they go, really. Mm -hmm. I I yes, I absolutely agree with Bernadine. Um, and having been lucky enough to, to be the recipient of a couple of prizes for younger writers, they can be so important because they give you, they buy you time. Mm. And that is the most important thing that you need. You know, the prizes that, that just allow you to pay your rent or to <laughs> go on a residency or have some time there, aside from the, the, the recognition and everything else, I think on a practical level, we need to make sure that those, that economics don't mean that stories close down and that fewer people get to tell fewer stories. I think keeping any lifelines open is, is important. Beautiful. Hmm. Can I just very quickly add yeah. to that? Mm -hmm. I think it's a question of holding on to gains as well as new gains. You know, once upon a time, there was Virago. I do not believe there's a woman my age who hasn't got at least one of those green reprints <laughs> in their bookcase. It was quite extraordinary moment in which they said, it's not just we've got some bright women writers, it's we've got a history, an embodiment of women writers. So by bringing them back into print, they were both criticizing the fact that they weren't in print and making them available to us. Mm. Have we sustained that gain? If not, how might we sustain it? Prizes might be a good way. Um, Capitalising publishers might be a good way. There's all sorts of might be a good way, but it's Grace Paley, who is one of my favorite writers, an American short story writer, has two, a couple going, uh, two young women going along in a car together, and one of them's straight, the other's gay, and the straight one thinks she is very right on, which she really is, and she gets criticized for saying something about looking for husbands by her friend, and she says, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have done that, and her friend said, that's fine, I accept your apology, but I am watching you like a hawk. And I think we have to keep watching our gains. I think there have been gains, I think they're real, and we have to keep watching them. Um, and those would be gains not just about women, but about all sorts of other areas. You know, we ought to be defending third world publishing, we ought to be defending BME publishing, whether or not it's our publishing. You know, it'd be dead cheeky of me to start writing as though I were other than a white woman for example, either by pretending to be a man or by pretending to be of the BME community. But I can defend their rights as they can defend mine. And I think I'm watching you all, you book buyers, like a hawk. Hello. Um, I'm very happy to be here today. Um, we've actually come from the um, Kurdistan region of, um, of 
of Iraq, and um, you know, oh, Iraq. Other, yes, yes, the welcome. Kurdistan region. We're actually based in we're based in Erbil, and um, we've actually set up like a, um, a franchise of English language t colleges. We've been I've been there for 17 years, and we've seen English language transcend now as the second language in the region. And one of the things that's particular with Ilaf, I was introduced to your writing actually in Erbil, <laughs> and as you know, the political situation and the tensions, and even between Kurdistan, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, you know, and all of that. And I can say that your writing has really transcended borders, political, and cross the borders. And I can say that the young people, your books are prevalent in Erbil, and there are now book cafes, and people are reading. And every book cafe that I go to, Ilaf, you should come to Erbil, because honestly, you are really well known. Exactly. And uh, it's a real reading culture. I can see there now. And um, also... Reading when I first went in 2000, when everybody was leaving the region, you know, after the fall of the towers, we went, we went the other way. And we've seen the build-up of literature, reading, it's now become the second, and I can say that the books are being read in English, and books are widely available, and writers such as yourself, you've made such an impact on the youth, so thank you very much. I appreciate and well done. this so much. Thank you. you know, yeah. Thank you. Um, I've been to Erbil, and I've taken some workshops for your young women. That's one of the things that I'm most passionate about, you know, taking workshops for young people, young women especially, because sometimes all they need to hear from someone is you can, you write whatever story you want, you can do it. And I, some of your young women that I met, they would say they felt the recent history of their culture like a stone on their chest and it was pressing all of their breath from them. And I said to them, what stories do you want to write? And they were coming up with sci-fi epics and they were coming up with rom-coms. <laughs> and, and you just say, those stories are just as important. You know, if you're living in any kind of time of grand narrative, that can suck all of the oxygen from the other stories. And it's important to tell those stories and it's important to question those stories, but it's just as important to write other ways of being and to insist on, on other ways of being. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. It's absolutely beautiful, and I wish I had uh, asked or warned before the, my predecessor, because I'm going to be a bit negative about the development. The publishing industry is opening up, and that's perfect. Also, the political debate, but you have to watch the digital and the social media. Yeah. I mean, among women, uh, LGBT, and, and you know the storytellers of us, we are way ahead and it is moving. It seems like it's moving. But if you actually look at Wikipedia or Google, I, we actually Googled you know, some of the, the names ahead and you just see how the algorithms um, put exactly the categories that, that deny storytellers to be storytellers and to have a totally different narrative um, than the Silicon Valley and the, econ uh, the, the economy wants us to be. So I really watch out and er all of us on Wikipedia go and write uh, our own stories about our storytellers whom we adore because Wikipedia is one, still one sexist wall uh, against women authors um, mm -hmm. and, and it's going on, you know, the, the edit wars and so on. Mm -hmm. So I, the publishing industry is one thing but please do yeah. not underestimate the crimes that come against storytellers from the digital 
uh, a dictatorship that we're about to witness. Yeah. Can, can yeah. I just respond to that? Not really yes, about yes. Wikipedia, but also, but about social media. Social media in general. Yeah, and on I the think side, yeah. obviously we know there are pros and cons to social media, but social media has been really important in terms of the developments we've seen in publishing in this country yeah. through, you know, it, well, let's say my particular interest group is younger, generally writers of color, finding international, global communities to support their ideas, you know, gaining lots of followers, um, finding a platform for their ideas through blogs and, and yeah. social media, and then the publishers are coming calling. That's not always a good thing, but it does mean that the publishers have become aware, the media has become aware of a grassroots global movement of people who would normally be marginalized and made invisible in their terms, but suddenly realizing that they have huge agency and currency and that these voices have got to be heard. And that's, that's the exciting thing, I think, about social media. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Good. Maybe one more question, if we have time. Um, so we spoke a lot about voices and silence, particularly yeah. in women. And recently I've become aware of imposter syndrome, particularly for women of color who are trying to write at the moment. And um, looking back, because I'm from an Egyptian Sudanese background, women would have been silenced for putting their work out there. For example, like Noala Sadawi talking about feminism and FGM, she was imprisoned. So how do we put our voices out there without worrying about the consequences as much, knowing that we are safe and we have a privilege writing from this perspective, living in this country? Well, that's such a powerful question. Thank you. Would you? Maybe, maybe you. What would you say? Okay, it's the most, it's, it's the least qualified person on this platform to address that question. I think that would be a fair way of putting it. I, I know how many voices are silenced. They're silenced in the long term, they're silenced in the short term, and they're silenced because the would-be writer is dead. Mm. You know, silencing happens. Um, but I think we have to be, and that's why I say we have to watch each other like hawks. But I think it's, very, it's quite difficult to start picking which groups are being specifically silenced at that minute, because by the time you've said it, it might not be correct. Um, so I think it's a very delicate political decision that one makes and remakes and makes again <laughs> about, should I stop publishing so there was more publishing space for you? Would they gave her a, a large contract if I didn't fulfill mine? <laughs> Not that she needs one, but I just picking yeah, but she doesn't need any contract that I'm likely to have, I can tell you. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I think they're really hard questions and actually it's not the writers it's the readers you're the people with the muscle i think it's a brilliant brilliant question it's a real and i think maybe in your head try to separate the personal imposter syndrome from the wider political aspect because no, maybe the imposter <laughs> syndrome never goes away you know every day you write you wonder if you're failing this time and a lot of the time you are and you so try to take away the personal imposter syndrome as much as possible once i think there's something so powerful once you start to see yourself reflected back 
in other people's words and in other people's stories. And stories have a way of doing that. You know, stories have a way of attracting like stories to them. Um, I wrote a story in my last collection about two young women falling in love. Um, and so many people came up to me and said, there aren't those stories about young women falling in love in Northern Irish, at least, maybe even broader Irish literature. They should be much better represented. And you, you do that, you write something, and then people feel that they can respond. Yeah. And so it, it can grow. It's so I think it's, 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 it's hard, and it sounds like you'll have, a, you have things to struggle with, but, but stay with it and keep going. <laughs> and we're all struggling, yeah. It's, what about Bernadine? Um, yeah, so what do you write? What stories do you tell? I think it's really up to um, how important it is to you to get those stories out there. So we become writers, I feel, because we have to get the stories out there. So I feel that, this, that you know, um, we're constantly battling a society that thinks we shouldn't be telling stories and that there are certain stories we shouldn't be touching on, like, for example, FGM. But it's up to us to find the fire in the belly that will produce that work and then to put that work out there. I think we've all had imposter syndrome, but you can get over that. And that's through producing the work and then getting feedback on the work and eventually growing as a writer. I have entitlement syndrome these days. I feel very entitled because I did not grow up to feel entitled. And so I think it's my duty to feel entitled. So when, 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 thing, when things don't happen for me that I want to happen, I'm like, why not? Why haven't I got this? Rather than I'm not good enough or maybe da-da-da-da-da, because I think I am good enough. So we know that certain, certain groups in society do feel entitled. You know, the people running our government, for example, um, who, aren't, who might, for example, be ext extremely mediocre in what they do and fail. Um, so I think it's something, entitlement, telling the stories, breaking through the silence is something that happens at time, but you have to start and then eventually develop your skills, develop your craft, produce the work, share the work, and you'll start to overcome what might now appear to be obstacles. Yeah, just, just to follow up on that, I, I go to different schools in, in Turkey and in different countries, and it always amazes me to see younger children, students, they have so much chutzpah, amazing imagination. And at that age, girls are much more confident than boys, in fact, right? And if you ask them, is there anyone in this room who wants to be a writer or a poet someday, so many hands go up. But then if you go and talk to high school students or college students, nobody puts up their hands mm. anymore. Nobody wants to be a writer or a novelist. And girls have been taught to be timid. We just take a step back. So when we, I mean, we, we're all born with so many talents, but we learn, we are taught to let go of our talents, of our dreams, because we worry so much about what other people are gonna say, about our work, about who we are. It's very difficult to write about political taboos, but it's equally difficult to talk about and write about sexual taboos. And yet we must, because that drive is much stronger than any concern we might have, and which is very understandable. But the drive, the faith inside, I think, has to be stronger. Can I, can I add to that? There's a very beautiful essay written by a writer called Nora Hickey, who died last year. Um, and the opening line of this essay is, 
You will not be surprised to hear I never set out to be an unpublished writer. <laughs> um, and she was somebody who consistently all her life wanted to be a writer and wrote this essay about what she got out of being a not published writer. So she, and she completed these novels and she submitted them and they were always just not quite in the views of public. It's very, very encouraging because she said it meant she talked to other women about writing. She talked and she wrote out there. She had to get over the fact that whether she was successful or not because it became eventually clear to her she was very unsuccessful but she still wanted to write. Um, it's in a collection of uh, essays about women's writing. It's a bit old now. But I, when I feel all these things we've just been talking about, I go back there and say, Nora was still writing the day before she died. Um, she wrote because she wrote, not to be famous, to get published, even really to get an audience, but because she was not going to be silenced. <laughs> you know, it's worth remembering that just being published isn't the beginning or the end, it's a part of. I think we, we can go on for another hour, but I believe we need to bring the conversation to an end. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening and huge thanks to Elif, Bernadine, Lucy and Sarah. We've got more episodes featuring the showcased writers from Elif's selection coming up in the very near future. Meanwhile, you can find out more about the International Literature Showcase by visiting nationalcentreforwriting.org uk forward slash ILS. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast over on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. Reviews are massively important to all podcasts as they help other people discover shows. So if you like what we do here, please do head over to iTunes and leave a one-line comment. To make sure you're always the first to know about our upcoming writing opportunities and events, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre, like us on our Facebook page and sign up to our newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Thanks again, keep writing, and I will catch you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.